This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. I am sure that you have wondered on occasion what makes a community tick. You ask, what are the things happening or thoughts of the people living there that determine how it operates? New research from the University of Pennsylvania uh, looked into understanding that better by looking at people's tweets. 37 billion of them. The World Wellbeing Project used them to give people a better understanding of where they live, but also the communities as well. Johannes Eichstad is a founding research scientist of the project, as well as postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychology here at the University of Pennsylvania, and he joins us in the studio. Great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Good to be on. So, I mean, give us uh, give us an understanding of, first, what you were trying to really understand, and obviously, going through so many tweets, I mean, I guess in today's age, it's a great way to get a kind of a feeling for what people are thinking. Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's part of a larger trend in the social sciences to go away from having to get people off their couches and have them answer surveys to just listening into data traffic to stuff they do anyway on the internet. Right. Uh, Google has done this very successfully a couple of years ago to measure the flu across the U.S. Um, with surprising accuracy. Right. And they're, our project is part of this larger effort to get fairly nuanced assessments of what people's lives are like without ever having to ask them. Uh, so the, the type of data that you're collecting using tweets, uh, and, and again, so many of them. Uh, it is a lot. It, it is a ton, which <laughs> it begs the question, how long had you been doing this work? Um, so we've been doing this for six years. Um, this particular data source just went online uh, a few months ago. It took us about a year to get this up. Right. Um, we did some work a couple of years ago with heart disease, and that was based on one billion tweets. Um, and that was already outperforming the CDC in some ways. Um, now we're up to 37 billion. Um, we are... Uh, perhaps the only psychology research group that has their own cluster. Mm-hmm. Um, so a set of computers that do this all by themselves. Um, we are piggybacking on a larger trend over the last 15 years in artificial intelligence, machine learning, pattern recognition. So we're mm-hmm. using all these um, techniques to sift through the tweets, find language patterns that are indicative of certain emotional states mm-hmm. or uh, cognitive states and combine them into large-scale estimates of what these communities are like. And you're doing this county by county. Um, the, the algorithms are doing yeah, it. Yeah. Do it. Yes, right, correct. <laughs> yeah, yes. No. yes, you are not physically seems, doing it, but, like but the process is doing yeah. this county by county across the United States. Right, so it first goes through a process called geotagging. So we, we uh, take a tweet and we figure out where it was sent from. We have some probabilistic decision rules. Sometimes we get GPS coordinates where we can put it square into a box and we know where exactly it's from. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a, a cascading set of rules that looks at things what, um, what users write on their profile where they're from. And then it says, well, if, if you say Philadelphia, um, assuming you're randomly drawn from all the Philadelphias in the U.S., there's nevertheless a 90% chance that you are from Philadelphia, PA. Right. And, and that's where you end up. So it's a, it's a clever combination of those rules that we developed a few years ago. So what were some of the things that you were looking for? I mean, I, I mean uh, traits, mindset, mm-hmm. people's you, mm-hmm. you know, lifestyles, yeah. happiness. What, what, what were you looking for? So, so in this particular effort, um, we, we're the World Wellbeing Project, and we were 
originally founded to try to see if we can do this for well-being. There is a larger effort with governments around the world to measure not just financial indicators, um, how well societies are doing, but also to measure well-being. And um, the, the key uh, of this particular project, of this particular effort, um, was to measure various well-being dimensions uh, across the U.S. So that's life satisfaction, that's emotional happiness, but also things like stress. In going through it and, and reading about it, uh, what I found interesting was seemingly the potential impact mm -hmm. of having this type of data mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, people maybe moving into a community yep. or not moving in, yep. Yep. Uh, impact on business. Yep. In the, I mean, these are yep. all data points yep. that, that have the potential yep. of having impact because of this type of research. Exactly. Um, that is that is the big picture pitch, is you only uh, improve what you can measure. And the hope is if you just do the measurement well enough, mm -hmm. you unleash natural market forces because well-being is desirable. People want to be happy. People want to live with happy people, right. uh, people who do well. So if you give people that piece of information, then they start making decisions that value as well-being because right. they move their companies there or they move there, which means that policymakers who want right. to make their communities more attractive, will start looking at the interventions they can do locally to boost these things. That was going to be my next question. Right. I mean, if, if the data is showing negative mm -hmm. tendencies, mm -hmm. then that gives people the opportunity to see potentially where they need to correct. Um, yeah, yeah, to some extent, yeah. 844-942-7866, if you'd like to join in, 844-942-7866. The policy part of it, I think, is interesting because, mm -hmm. I mean, we're in a time and frame here in the United States where, obviously, policy is a big topic, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. whether it be at the federal level or mm -hmm. all the way down to the state level. Mm -hmm. And seemingly, we it feels like there's that wall at times between the, the community and the policymakers. So mm -hmm. if you can break down that wall, you can affect some unbelievable changes going forward. Yeah, hopefully. Um, it's, a, it's a nuanced question to think through what the right level of aggregation is. What is the right level of analysis to measure psychological states and to think about policy? Mm -hmm. um, clearly, if you measure something on the block level, what are you going to do on the block level, right? Right. Um, but something like a county level or a zip code level is probably the the order the the size where you can still feel a change in your in your neighborhood and where that makes sense. But yeah. this 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 at least for right now you're focusing on on the United States. But I would think that this obviously has the potential to take this globally at some point. Yeah, yeah, we we, we have uh, an equivalent version of this app already for Spain. Um, we're working okay. with the Mexican government and trying to see if we can implement this around Mexico. Um, Mexican government has been very, very impressive in collecting their own data and implementing these methods. Mm -hmm. um, we have similar data sets for the UK, um, and we're just starting in China. What has been the reaction to, to people here in the US that you've talked to about this data set, or have you, have you gotten that reaction to this point? Yeah, I've gotten, um, it's funny, you put these things out, you never quite know what comes up. Sure, um, yeah. Some things you, you know, some small things you put out and you get uh, lots of interest. The interest with this has been predominantly from other academics, from other scientists, okay. who immediately see the implications for their work. Um, the behavioral economists want trust measure at the county level. Um, the, um, the NGO people 
want, sure. want measures of social cohesion. Um, and they're realizing there's all these variables that are incredibly hard to measure for communities. Right. And we might have a method here in which we can do this now for the first time. I, I'm guessing that there's also part to this when you think about different communities that obviously people's terminology and thought process mm-hmm. in, say, Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and how they try mm-hmm. and get a message forward is a little bit different than here in Philadelphia. I mean, same state, only, you know, couple hundred miles away, but obviously a little bit different. So you have to kind of take that into yep. effect yep. when you're when you're kind of reacting to all this data. Yeah, you, you're right on, actually. Um, if there are, there's a spectrum of methods that um, people use to do this work. And the very simple methods just take lists of words and scan for them on Twitter and say, if you say happy, you mean happy. Right. Um, in, in the case of Twitter, using the standard methods, um, it actually tells you exactly the opposite of what seems to be going on when you have some other ground truth measure. And it's precisely because of things like this. Um, When people say love on Twitter, um, they generally don't love people, they love things. Right, yeah. Um, Or they might be using Twitter in a different way that becomes a marker of being part of inner city communities. So is that is that why you used you went w- with Twitter specifically? I mean, a lot of people wonder, well, could you do this with Facebook? Could you, could, you do this with Instagram as well? Um, you can do it with both, um, with both Facebook and Instagram, but Twitter is probably best. Um, Twitter, A, is public. Okay. So it's very easy to scrape, as right. we say, right? You mass collect. You don't have to consent individuals. Right. That means you don't have to pay them. You don't have to recruit them. Academics are bad at running PR campaigns to get <laughs> right. 10 million people to join their study. Right, right yeah. Um, whereas with Twitter, that's that's fairly straightforward. Um, and it's text. Um, text is... Um, uh, I often get the question, yeah, but what about what about images? Right? Well, is, isn't right. everyone on Instagram? Yeah, of course everyone is on Instagram. And we've done similar work with image features, everything from the image composition to the color profile, is it black or white? Um, there's a literature that shows that that's related with personality traits, what you, what kind of pictures you put up. But generally, the signal in images is much less than in text. Right. Right? Text is a proven technology. It goes back to the uh, clay tablets, yeah. the Sumerian clay tablets at least. Yeah. Um, and it's worked since then, and it'll work for the next 100 years as well, I promise. Do, does the fact that people, when you think about Twitter, and, and I, I was mentioning this to a friend the other day, is that we see more and more people that will want to shorten words. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you have a certain amount of characters, you will mm-hmm. kind of cut them down. I mean, I would think some of the core words, though, right. are, are still the same. But yep. you also have a lot of people on Twitter yeah. using emojis. Yep. And mm-hmm. how does and how does the use of emojis kind of play into this? The algorithms don't care. Okay. <laughs> as to whether it's an emoji is just a it's it's a unicode word, right? right? Yeah. For our algorithms, algorithms don't don't know what word, words mean, right? right? They see the context and they see um they see the word themselves, but that's it. Um, yeah, that's the difference between using these machine learning, modern artificial intelligence methods, which look at everything yeah. and use everything, including the fact that people abbreviate. Right. And I have a, a short example about that in a second, um, as well as the, the stuff that simpler methods use as well, um, with the advantage that it sort of auto-tunes itself, it auto-calibrates mm-hmm. against these phenomena you've describing, semantic drift, semantic change, semantic pressures, uh, geographic variation in language use, all of this. Uh, we're joined by her in studio by Johannes Eichstad, who is uh, with the University of Pennsylvania. We're talking about the research that uh, he has been doing along with his cohorts and the World Wellbeing Project. Uh, this right now, uh, 
is is an interactive map basically correct at this point yeah yeah i mean interactive is a strong word but you, okay. can, you can click around in it right it's a, it's a modern web application it's right. a layer on a um, on a map where you can uh, activate certain pieces you can zoom in you have if you have if you're interested in a particular county you can enter that somewhere in the map and it'll give you the complete rundown of what that county looks like and where it is in the distribution of counties in the US yeah i would think the real estate industry would be unbelievably interested in this <laughs> because because yeah, of the fact no, it's of, a of, really good point. of yeah. the potential yeah. of people wanting to either move yeah. in or move out yeah. either not wanting to move yeah. into a specific yeah. specific area i yeah. mean you yeah, you yeah. did this county by county but i mean it, mm -hmm. as you said you can probably even pare this down even a little bit farther, oh, in, in ten, street by street. In maybe ten years, even. we're at the block level. In ten years, um, the the people who make ArcGIS, the sort of geospatial software that all the geographers use, right, already has overlays that tells me that people down my street um, use laptops and drink a lot of lattes. Um, <laughs> it's just a question of time until these psychological variables are exactly as accessible as demographic variables. Now, just imagine what this means in conjunction with um, with political analytics. Right? Yeah, um, there's there's larger implications here about how to deal with this reality. Yeah, because we're already at the point where all of this data in terms of politics, especially the uh -huh. last couple of political elections, how important the candidates have seen the use of data and the use of the internet to truly starting to better understand who their people are, where they should focus resources, how much they should spend in the state of Wisconsin right, compared to right, the state of Pennsylvania. Right. So that's just going to get ramped up even more as, as we go you know, through the next decade or so. For sure. I mean, right now there's a lot of lore in that space. It's not entirely clear how important these big data operations are right. in the end, micro-targeted advertising, all of that. And the people who sell it think it's very important. Uh, it's not totally clear to me that, that this will be uh, that much more effective, perhaps a 20% boost over what came before, but that's it, uh, is my sense. But yeah, this will become this will become incredibly important. When you mentioned that, that you said that, that uh, obviously you're doing this in Spain right now as uh -huh, well, uh -huh. what was that conversation like? I mean, what was their interest at the outset, whoever the, the, the people were in Spain, the government, whatever it might be, right. uh, of doing this type of research for their country? Um, I think the the truth is so we were sponsored by a, by a Spanish bank to do this okay. um, uh, with a sponsored research agreement here with Penn and I think it's people want to be associated with well being okay I think is their motivation is the truth right think Coca Cola right it's a it's an ancient marketing ploy right. 844-942-7866 if you'd like to join in or on Twitter at, speaking of Twitter, at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, how much, though, I mean, can you take some of this data and with the other types of research that you're doing to try and enhance that? Um, yeah, I mean, that's all I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, take these new data feeds and try to integrate them into other data sources, um, national data sources. And there's there's some amazing connections. Um, In what areas? Um, just combining this Twitter data with the largest well-being data in the U.S. Right. Um, that's collected by the Gallup organization. Gallup's called a 1,000 people a day, asking them about 100 questions yeah. every day for the last six years. So that's two over two million interviews, and we've crossed that data now with the um, with a with a Twitter corpus of twenty seven thirty seven billion tweets, 
Um, and for the first time, we see the language paper, the language representation. So we see what it is in communities that makes people stressed, that makes people happy, that makes people satisfied. Yeah. I want to go back to some because when I when I think about Twitter, and at mm -hmm. least in my use of Twitter, yeah, I, I use it as a promotional yeah. tool yeah. for this show, right. for you know yeah. things that I see on the internet. So do I. How much do? But how much does that impact the data when you, to a degree, you mm -hmm. want to get the reactions from? you know, Joe average person down the block right. who is reacting to something else. I mean, I mean, does that play into it? Oh, yeah. 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 So it, what, what it means is that it just waters down your signal. You just need so much more Twitter than you would need Facebook, okay. which is probably already substantially more. If we could get people, people's emails, which is, um, the people at Twitter love you saying that. <laughs> I don't know if the people. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg likes you saying that. But 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 it is. I strongly suspect. He but doesn't but care. right yeah. yeah. But it, but yeah. it is a valid question in terms of Twitter as yeah. a company as an yeah. entity. Yeah. In terms of of the use of it and and the importance of it in right. trying to to reach this this type of data. Oh, they've realized this. They've yeah. realized this quite a while ago. Um, in the beginning. Um, they had other companies sell tweets at scale, and they've mm. now taken all of this in-house. And um, social science stuff we're doing here is fun, but think about um, the, the quantitative trading that can go on by using psychological states or representations of how certain companies are doing in nanoseconds or I, milliseconds. I would think that also, I mean, I, I mm. kind of off the cuff said real estate, but thinking about it, uh, the health industry as well. I, I mean, people's health outcomes and, and their impacts, mm -hmm. you know, what they're feeling in Philadelphia compared to Los Angeles. Uh, obviously, we had the, the water crisis in mm -hmm. Flint, mm -hmm. Flint, Michigan. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all different kind of, uh, seemingly this this feels like it's it's a little bit of an endless, you know, you can take this to a variety of different areas mm -hmm. and really focus on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, the more, in, so... The, the larger application of this has to do with incentive alignment. Who cares and for what reason, right? Right. So to the extent that you have an entire state covered by one health insurance, say, one sort of single-payer style health insurance, you can imagine that this kind of information, um, knowing people's stress levels, yeah. um, becomes actionable because you have somebody who cares that that stress doesn't turn into smoking, that doesn't turn into diabetes, that doesn't turn into heart disease. Right? Or drinking or a variety of other exactly, different, right. uh, different options. So the more you have a framework around it, a policy framework around it that, um, that rewards people for doing something about right. it, right. the more this will actually be used for the better. I mean, we've known that, that having this type of data is going to have, it is having, and is going to continue to have an unbelievable impact on society and on business mm -hmm. moving forward. Mm -hmm. But seemingly, it feels like when when you have you know algorithms like this, and as you mentioned, yep. I mean, this is going to be a multiplier in, in the years to come as to how much better yep. this is going to get. Yep. That the information and the, the insurance industry, the health mm -hmm. insurance industry, yep. that's going to markedly change in the next decade or two because of having this type of data. Yeah, absolutely. So we had the first example of an insurance in the UK trying to use Facebook-derived personality estimates in the pricing of your insurance. Hmm. So if I know that you're neurotic, that, you're, um, that you have problems with impulse control, yeah. that you're uh, risk-seeking, reward-seeking, so you're a sort of male 21-year-old who's particularly likely to race or something, yeah. I'd like to take that into account in pricing my insurance to you. Yeah. Um, what happened in the UK was premature, 
and there was a big backlash. The Guardian wrote a big story about it, and it was sort of dissembled within a day. Yeah. Um, but there will come a time when everything you write in shared digital spaces will be part of these market forces. Hmm. And there is nothing in the works in terms of policy, in terms of 21st century data ownership, not privacy. Privacy, I think, is an outdated concept. It just doesn't work. Right. But what is a new framework that says, I own the information gleaned from my data, and you don't have the right to derive things from my data that I don't know you know. Right, exactly, which means that also it it seems like we're going to have a potential quite a bit of friction in that area when you're talking about the individual consumer against the... The, the massive insurance yeah. company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm culturally German. Um, the situation looks very different in the European Union, where there is very um, uh, consolidated policy efforts in trying to get a handle on this. The sort of the balance, the power balance in the U.S. is very much on the side of the corporations. Sure, yeah. And and large financial interests. Right. So, um, if there's a consumer that will get screwed first, it'll be the American consumer. Well, that that was going to be the next question. I mean, seemingly because this system, uh-huh. at least just specifically talking about health insurance, yeah. is so different yeah. than, than pretty much anything else that is around the globe. What does that mean for the future of of healthcare here in the United States when you have all of this data kind of compiling against potentially against the consumer? Yeah, I mean, my. 30,000-foot view of this is that American healthcare has major problems that are much bigger than leaving that um, policy-type variance on the table. What I mean by this is that um, the fact that people disproportionately get treated in emergency departments just means that the whole pipeline that has to do with keeping you healthy is off the table. Anything from screening to health interventions to making sure you have a coach to not get diabetes or whatever it is. Right. Um, in, a, in a healthcare system where everything's sort of backloaded to the emergency department, that's not going to work. Right. But um, let's pivot the other way. Uh, think about Britain, where you have the NHS. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So fairly capable data operation, fairly capable health insurance system and delivery system right. with completely aligned incentives to use those for early prevention. Yeah. Now, that could be a case study of doing this really well. And we've already seen the NHS do pretty intelligent, amazing things about scalable interventions for mental illness, for example, right. um, that just work because there's one centralized agency that cares and is incentivized to do it. So in terms of the research that you've done here in, in the United States with, with looking at communities and stuff, where, do, where does this go next? Well, I mean, what are, what are the, the next natural steps in this process? Um, that's a good question. So one of the big things um, we haven't quite tackled yet in the last six years is to get a fine-grained understanding of what is a meaningful change. When does a, you know, when does a community get better? When does it get worse? Mm-hmm. How can I... Um, it's a sort of nuanced statistical question. How... And probably why and what were the factors behind it. Right? Exactly, right? That, yeah. That's the second step. But just convincing yourself that you've developed. So we're starting from scratch with a completely new set of methods, right? So we've we've had 100 years of experience with how to use surveys to measure changes in communities. Uh, what's a reliable survey? What, what are the ways in which it goes, uh, all that stuff goes wrong? So we're just now at the point where these our methods are 
the methods of this community that develops these methods are maturing to the point that we can begin to ask these more nuanced questions. Go, going back for a second, with all of that data that is going to be obviously available to insurance companies and mm-hmm. you know all different business entities out there, I, I've I've talked on this show and others about the fact that it, it, not only does that you have to be wary if the if you're being mm-hmm. the consumer, mm-hmm. but if you're the government that mm-hmm. is tasked with kind of looking out for the consumer, uh-huh. you know, does that present a potential kind of landmine along the way. Uh, you mean in the sense of them spying on you? Or? Well, not necessarily spying on you, but I mean, the, the, the government is seen as an entity, it's supposed to be. Yeah, depends uh, on who you are. Right, exactly, right. <laughs> uh, uh, of, yeah. you know, of, of looking out for the best interest of the consumer. Yeah. Well, if all of these different companies, whether it be health right. insurance, whatever, have all this data and right. they can change this yep. basically on the, on, the, on the second, and the consumer is the one that, that really, as you said, could get screwed by this. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't this put more pressure on the government to kind of be involved in this and and kind of look out for the consumer as well? A hundred percent. Boy, did I wish we had a functioning government, right? Right, exactly, yeah. And a, a, yeah. a functioning legislature right. that could attend to actual things that aren't health care or the budget. Right, right. and yeah. that could go all the way from Washington, D.C., all the way down to your local government. Yeah, but these are this, these are federal problems, right? So these okay. problems, these policy guidelines, the, the idea of digital rights, of having of ensuring digital rights of people yeah. in the 21st century. Yeah. Just like at some point it was clear that there was a, a postal privacy, you can't open somebody's mail sure, yeah. that violates federal law because yeah. there's an understanding about privacy mediated through a national system, right? So in, in a sense, we need the equivalent of that, not in a simple idiotic way, but in a sort of appropriate modern way. Um, <laughs> At the national level for these digital spaces. Boy, would it be nice to get that. That's gonna that's gonna take at least a few decades. Yeah, yeah, no, to no. get to that point. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Uh, for people <laughs> that for people that would like to to find out more about the World Wellbeing Project, where can they go? The website. Um, like all good uh, like all good academics, everything we do has an acronym. So it's www.bp.org, worldwellbeingproject.org. Um, it's our work there. I'm there. Um, Happy to hear from you. Thank you very much. My Thanks pleasure. for coming in. Thanks Great for having appreciate me. It. Johannes Eichstad uh, joining us here in studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.